Buckle up for AEC Trailblazers, the Founders Files, where we crack open the stories of the brightest minds in the AEC startup scene. Forget institutional pitches, while diving deep into the real personal journeys of these industry disruptors. Get ready for some casual chats firsthand. All right, everybody. Welcome again to the Trailblazers AC podcast. We have here today Zach Softly. He is the founder and CEO of Layer, where he leads company operations and product development. With a decade of experience participating and leading computational design and innovation initiatives, Zach's passion for improving the building life cycle drives the vision and energy behind Layer, a multi platform app and Revit adding that makes it easy for architects and engineers to connect rich building data to BIM. Uh, Zach, do you want to introduce yourself? Do you want to add anything else to the to the intro? Oh, I think that's great. Yep. Uh, I'm the founder of Layer and I'm excited to be on with you today. Great. Love to have you here. Um, let, let's start with uh, some questions in, in a personal level. How do you decide to become an architect? Uh, so I, I, uh, I would say that kind of started when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, I would say. I uh, remember drawing uh, floor plans and drawings of uh, houses, dream houses that I wanted to live in once I, once I grew up. And I, at that point, I realized, like, I would love to do this uh, full time. And so uh, I, as I, as I, Grew up, I think 13, 14, ended up in a, a CAD class, uh, I think. And uh, that really kick-started my, my love for um, design and uh, particularly uh, buildings. And um, from there, I, like I said, I kind of knew that that's what I wanted to do. So um, started uh, the program at uh, the University of Nebraska-Lincoln um, at the College of Architecture. They're not really knowing what... Uh, architecture was uh, fully <laughs> just knowing that like I wanted to design buildings um, and uh, went, went, went through that program and the rest is kind of history. So, yeah. Yeah. Like I feel that you have, I'm an architect as well. So for, for all of us, it's the same. You, you get to college and it's like, yeah, I know I want to draw houses, but there are so many things you can do when you're an architect, right? It's not just about design. Uh, even though sometimes that's the only thing that teachers push you to do, right? Yes. Um, but but in, in your case, after uh, you became an architect, uh, what was your first job? Uh, how do you start it? Yeah, I uh, I got a got a job at my I think my the summer of my third year in architecture school uh, at a, a small firm um, called BVH Architecture um, here in Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, and so that was kind of my first real taste of, uh, the profession, I think. And, um, th there's a, there's a big difference between, um, um, academia and, uh, the professional realm of, of architecture. So, uh, I learned a ton, um, that summer and dove into, uh, quite a few projects uh, on, on, at, at that firm. They were currently working on a, some, uh, existing condition uh, assessments for the state capitol. They're working on um, the uh, gateway arch um, 
conditions assessments. They're starting work on the the Haymarket Arena. So like, I kind of I kind of ended up falling into a lot of those um, types of projects, which is just support uh, for um, specifically around um, computational design and uh, data solutions um, for those problems. So anyways, it, it was a that's where I started, and then ultimately when I graduated in uh 2012 with my master's degree um i ended up getting a getting a job there full-time and how was the transition that you mentioned between like being an architect and start working on the computational design realm it, it was something that came natural to you it was something that you had to do because your boss told you or i i remember in my third year of college um, hearing about Grasshopper for the for the first time, um, and downloading it because I had Rhino, and I downloaded Grasshopper, and I started connecting nodes and doing. And for those who may not know, Grasshopper is a visual scripting plugin for Rhino, um, and I, I started I started connecting the nodes together and realizing the power behind computational and parametric tools. Uh, and I never looked back that I was, I was, I was, uh, attached and, and super excited to just learn more and more and more about how I could put these tools to use. So that kind of started in my third year of architecture school. Um, and again, I just continue to, I continue to develop those skills. So it started, it started before my, my love for computational design really started before, um, the, uh, a job in the professional realm it started in school i would say i think that you know something that we all have in common when we work on the tech side of the ac is like a lot of us started using either dynamo or grasshopper yeah uh, grasshopper if you're a little bit older dynamo. Yeah. no i'm just kidding <laughs> uh, I, I started i remember i started with a uh, dynamo by that time but I remember that it was not as easy to use as Grasshopper. It was, yeah. you remember the yellow notes. Uh, yeah. Most times you hit run, it, it, nothing happened. It just yeah. broke. Uh, so the same happened to me. Try Dynamo. I was like, this is not so good. Move to Grasshopper. Um, and and it's so cool. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's like the first steps. But then you... you started programming as well or it was just peaceful programming for you so i think i think after that after that third year i found creative ways to use grasshopper on every single studio project i was working on um uh, to its detriment sometimes um, that i would kind of force that uh, as a as a solution but i think like what i was doing kind of unknowingly through my uh, you know fourth fifth um, years of school was uh, continuing to develop those skills in uh, computational uh, design and using projects as a way to kind of, uh, I guess, further my knowledge uh, of, of how these systems work. So it started with kind of simple routines um, that were helping me with modeling tasks, but then getting more into like generative forms uh, from um, these tools. And then I dove into you know, actually starting to create, um, custom scripts using Python nodes. Um, and so I think like my, my skills just continue to evolve through, uh, 
So again, fourth and fifth years of school. Um, and during that time too, on the professional side, I was working as an intern part-time during the school year as well at, at, uh, BVH architecture. Um, I continued to just find creative ways to, uh, solve project problems with, uh, um, parametric tools like grasshopper. Um, and so I think all of that just kind of naturally, um, in- increased my abilities in those, in those platforms. And that kind of all led up to my, my sixth year of architecture school, where my thesis was really focused on data-driven architecture. Basically, how can we use, how can we use data to drive, um, form and function, uh, of a, of a building? So, um, my, my entire year of thesis was spent kind of diving into the programming realm and, uh, developing, um, and, 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 and programming, to uh, effectively drive form and function of a building. That that's so cool that your actual thesis is so related. When yeah, it is. Like your building, it's it's, it's very related. T- typically, the thesis of most architects are even computational designers, right? Are like I don't know the design of a of a building or a specific building, and then they realize like, no, this is not the thing I want to do. I want to do. <laughs> code and products and and they they have to start from scratch you you were able to do a thesis that's so cool um yeah. I, i'm just curious you said that you were creating grasshopper scripts and sometimes you, you were even forcing people to use it or I, I don't recall the word you used but um that in some cases it was not even necessarily uh yeah, yeah, I, th- I think like I, I remember specifically a project in fourth year where I used Grasshopper to generate to to really to generate the entire form of this project in this building, um, and it was it was it was forced in that it, it, I, I I was forcing um, that solution in that Grasshopper probably was not the appropriate tool to actually be designing um and like generating the form for this um, particular project but i think like i was so enthused with it with um the tool that i was using it for everything on the design side so i guess what my my point there was just it was probably being used in areas that i shouldn't have been using it you know looking back <laughs> so well but but i i think that's it Okay, lesson that we have all done it. <laughs> Actually, with you, we have all done it. When you started using Dynamo Grasshopper, you want to use it for everything. Yeah. Sometimes it's not even worth it. It's just you want to use it for one project and you spend maybe sometimes a huge amount of hours and then you just save two hours for just using exactly. your algorithm. You have to just done it manually. But I, I think it's a great way of learning, not so much the code, because when I started coding myself, at least for me, it was like, I know how to code. I'm a superhero now. Yeah. And well, that that's amazing, but it's just another tool. Uh, I guess the, 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 the most important knowledge is being like a protocol. Like when you're doing a grasshopper node, you're, you're a programmer. You're in a, like a, a small entrepreneur inside an architectural firm because you have to sell this to people and you have to provide results and there's a return of investment of your hours and it and the good thing is, like, if you fail, like, like you said, and we have all done it, 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 you don't fail, you don't make a big fail, like uh, going bankrupt with a, a startup. So it's 
those are small lessons I feel that uh, serves really well to founders who have their own startups. I guess that that's my thought. And we're, yeah. Do you feel like that as well, or? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think um, I think like there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, salesmanship that goes into uh, um, computational and parametric uh, roles within uh, a, a firm. Um, in that, like, you really have to be you have to be super clear about communicating the value that you might be delivering with a certain script or program, just because um, most people are not going to understand what it's doing, um, you know, behind the screen, behind the scenes. So like you really have to communicate, I think the value that, uh, these solutions might be delivering to a project. So, um, I remember, (laughs) and I I think, I I think I learned that lesson on several projects, um, in the, uh, in the professional realm, um, where it has to be connected to value. Um, and, and and otherwise people aren't going to buy into it. Yeah. It's, I think it's a story that it seems so simple, but it's so hard when you're the owner of a product that you think of features all the time that you want to implement on it. And you think this is a great idea. And and then you take it to market and nobody wants to use it or nobody wants to buy it. And, and and you realize you cannot even trust your own judgment. Sometimes It's, it's, it's a, it's a thin balance that is so hard between and uh, trusting your own experience, but at the same time, listen to the users. And it's not as easy as it sounds. Um, at least, I bet you 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 have suffered the same experience, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, a lot of times you make your your you take your best guess, but like I think the then this is relevant for like you know actual products versus. Um, scripts that you might be uh, wanting to use at a, at a firm, but like getting it in the hands of end users as quickly as possible is probably your, your, your best bet at understanding uh, the value that you're delivering to customers. Cause you can, you can take your best guess. Um, but a lot of times it's not until you get it into the hands of your users that you, you, you fully understand um, what it's doing and what it's not doing for them. Oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and how was how was for you going from the, the guy who did the scripts at the architectural firm into start creating your your own product? How how did that happen? <laughs> yeah, good question. So uh, it all kind of started with uh, well, I guess backing up a little bit. Um, once I graduated and started working full time at this architecture firm, I uh, was just a traditional project architect working on working on projects. But uh, what I was kind of doing in the in the process is identifying opportunities on projects that I was working on <clears throat> to implement, you know, computational tools like Grasshopper uh, to solve specific project problems. So. Uh, typically th- that started by kind of identifying those problems, um, at the beginning, developing a solution and showing team members, Hey, look what we can do. Um, and that, uh, I continue to do that as I, as I worked again, kind of in the traditional role of architect. Um, and I kind of ended up kind of falling into a role of, of, uh, people knowing that I, I have these skills, 
um, seeing problems that they were having on their own projects and bringing me those problems to see if I could help with some type of solution. And so uh, that was the case on the Nebraska State Capital uh, project. The uh, The firm was awarded a, basically a 10-year HVAC replacement project for the Nebraska State Capital. Uh, the project team, as part of the project, had to go out and gather a ton of inf- uh, information and data on site. Um, basically go room to room, window to window, door to door, and gather uh, a ton of data on each of those items. So we had this, they had, the team had this really detailed Revit model uh, of the building. So geometrically, we had a ton of great information. The problem was we didn't have uh, the conditions data that we needed in order to make design decisions uh, for the project. And so the team's plan was to basically go out on site with the digital camera, walk room to room, snap photos, jot down conditions like the west wall material is, you know, tile, it's preservation worthy, uh, its condition is fair, you know, all of those types of things, jot all that down on notepads, come back to the office, download it all, scan those notes in and stick them in file folders so that you could find them. Um, you know, months or even years down the road. Uh, they knew that wasn't going to work. <laughs> uh, well, um, I think overall we gathered like 39,000 photos, interior photos of the building. So like it was a lot of data uh, that the team was gathering. And so up front, they knew they needed an alternative. Um, and so uh, I went and kind of looking for a solution uh, out there, didn't find anything that was going to, to solve our problem. And so um, I ended up building a, a prototype uh, over the weekend that essentially connected to our Revit model, extracted the rooms, doors, and window objects from the model, and then made those like objects available in a list on a on a phone, um, in a, on, on an iPhone. So a user in the field could then see the full list of rooms, click on an item, and then snap photos in the field. Um, answer survey questions um, for that particular room. And then all of that information would then be automatically connected to that room in the model. So then essentially the user had side-by-side information of the existing conditions as they were navigating their Revit model. Um, th- that I kind of brought that prototype to the team and said, hey, like, this is, this is an option. What do you think about this? Fully expecting them to shoot it down. And all of them, to my surprise, were like, let's do this. This is cool. So uh, over the next, I think, four months, we spent, um, essentially, I spent kind of heads down developing this tool as the team was using it in the field. <laughs> so like, it was, it was a very, like, it was, it was, it was actually a great process of, of, because we had an immediate connection to our end users and had immediate feedback and could provide immediate uh, updates um, to the system as uh, needs arise. But um, over the over the next four months, it, it, it kind of continued to develop as the team was surveying. Um, and uh, by the end of that, we, we basically had this great repository of information that was connected to our model and the 27 team members on this particular project all had access to this information as they were navigating the Revit model. So I think at that point, I realized that we were solving a pain point that was much bigger than just um, this project. And so uh, 
I kind of knew I had that decision sitting in front of me, like, do, do I want to take and pursue this further? Or do I just want to move on to the next project and, um, develop a different solution for this, this next thing down the line. And, um, yeah, that's kind of where I ended up. I, I love it. You you make it sound so easy. Like it wasn't that easy. It was yeah, messy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just made this thing over the weekend, then well, <laughs> everybody started using it. Yeah, uh, what, what was funny is it was like it was before my understanding of, um, you know, like uh, working with an MVP, a minimum viable product, and um, like the best practices in the industry of of software, and that you get your software out to your users as early as possible so that you can get immediate feedback. It was before my understanding, um, of any of that stuff, but like looking back, uh, it actually was a, it actually was a great way to, uh, build a tool and that we were getting, we were getting a super buggy and like, uh, minimum viable product into the hands of our end users, uh, who were giving us immediate feedback on the product. So that whole process was invaluable to, I think the success of the, the tool today. Uh, and it, it's all cool because it, it correlates with great products out there. Like, I don't know, uh, Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or these uh, great heroes of the tech industry, like they all started the same way. It was just one or two guys doing the tool themselves, learning a lot about the client from uh, day zero. Okay. Um, and, and and I feel it's it's a great path. Uh, I I've seen not only here I've seen firsthand so many companies that they raise money, but they don't they don't do it like you do like or you did like studying just a few people trying to to provide value as soon as possible. They just start building this huge product without even having a single user, and and then they fail. They go bankrupt or I I I love what you did, uh, and I love that you're the founder. So you you know exactly how the product works from 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 the start. Um, but but then I'm I'm curious, like you said, it's a much more complex tax going from uh, this internal MVP product that a lot of companies create internal products, yep. and it's a completely different story taking something that's internal and it's uh, adapt only to one company okay. and taking that to multiple companies. And I'm just curious on how, how was the journey after the point that you decided, okay, I'm going to pursue this. How was that? Yeah. So, uh, I think it started like the first realization that this could be, this could have application beyond just this particular project was when the, the project team over the course of this survey, um, I think, I think we started with like, 50 data points that we are gathering for every single room. And so those were reflected in a, in a form that users could fill out with text inputs, with a toggle switch for a true false thing, with a drop down select um, input for different options we needed to select. And those were all hard coded into the software, um, those those fields or form, form fields. Uh, and I think after like the, I don't know, 25th time of the project manager coming to me saying, Hey, can we tweak this in the form or can we change this? I was kind of sitting at my desk and I was like, I am sick of making these changes, these small changes to the code based off of just little tweaks they want to make to the form. What if I put, what if I allowed them to control 
um, the fields and the settings for that particular form field in the app. Uh, and so I ended up, I ended up over the next day or two, um, uh, implementing that or, or making that change. And that was kind of the start for, I think the kind of flexible platform that we've put together today, because, um, it was, it was kind of made by necessity. We had to, we had to do it because there had to be adjustments to this, uh, building survey and condition assessment form. Um, but starting there, starting like from a condition assessments, uh, foundation, the, the, the framework for gathering that information has to be one, uh, flexible because, uh, every project and every company is concerned about gathering different types of data. So we, we ended up kind of starting unknowingly building this kind of flexible framework, uh, um, from the beginning. But again, once we, once we got through the survey and, um, realized that this, this could be, this could have more application than just this particular project. Um, again, I had to, I had to think through like, okay, do I want to pivot my career and move away from architecture and go into, uh, you know, take this risk on this product, or do I want to just continue down the traditional career path with kind of this technology focus? Um, and ultimately I decided, yeah, let's do it. Like I, I, I didn't think that this opportunity was going to come about, um, every day. And so I decided to pursue it. And so at that stage, um, the, uh, the company, um, decided to essentially partner with me to, to, to essentially back my time in rebuilding the app from the ground up. So I spent probably the next six months, uh, rebuilding, um, the, uh, the application from the ground up. Uh, and we launched in, uh, April of 2019. Uh, at, at that stage, it was just me, um, working uh, again at this, uh, at this architecture firm. And they were basically allowing me to focus the majority of my time on this product. We launched the product in April, um, and of, of, of 2019. And, uh, then from there we hired our first developer in May, uh, right after that. Um, and our, uh, our, our, our second team member um, immediately following that. So, um, at, at that point when we got it out to market, we got it out into the the hands of early users and got again a ton of great feedback about what direction and um uh, we we could head with this product uh and so um we developed a business plan um and uh essentially essentially uh continued to build i i basically pivoted the rest i, I pivoted full-time into uh that product and we've been building the company ever since the last couple of years so and it's it's a really interesting journey and it's so good to have basically your first client is was backing up backing you up to build the product so that's yeah. I, I also feel that's like the perfect path uh because instead of having an investor who might provide you only money as have, having a company that are interest really interested on on the product um, exactly. How was that first experience being the, the architect who codes alone and having to hire a developer? How was, how was that first interaction with a real developer out there? I remember, I remember sitting down to lunch with, uh, our potential 
developer hire, kind of going through uh, the app uh, with him and and showing him showing him uh, the ropes. And I think I think he was hooked from from seeing that day one. He had he had worked at a a larger company, worked on kind of a segment of a particular product, and was really interested in getting into uh, getting getting more ownership uh, of a of a product. And so. Um, I remember sitting down to lunch with him and I think he walked into it pretty skeptical, um, and not really knowing, not really thinking this was going to go anywhere. But, um, as, as he says, he kind of walked out realizing, okay, this is, this is going to be something big. Um, and I want to be a part of it. So he let me know, um, that, uh, he let me know that he, he wanted to join and, um, we, we ended up hiring him. And, uh, like I said, a month after we launched and, um, it, it it went really well, honestly. Handing over, I still continue to code, um, probably for the next for the next year and a half. I would say pretty pretty regularly. Um, but then as we continue to build our development team, I've I've been out of it for I've been out of you know coding directly for for quite a while. But um, yeah, I, I always say that when you feel that you're in the middle of the other developers, when you you start feeling that. <laughs> is the moment you have to decide <laughs> to stop coding because you're not doing that good of a job anymore. Exactly. It's uh, funny because we still we still talk about they still uh, our de- our development team still finds little nuggets of original code from the app. You know, mo- most of what we've done we've 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 uh, refactored in some way or another with our current development team. But they still let me know every time they run into a a gem of. <laughs> Of, of mine coded back in 2019. <laughs> or, oh, or spaghetti code. Hmm, this is suck. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. exactly. No, I, bet, I bet the code was good. I bet the code was okay. good. And, but and have you hired, mo- most of the developers you have are just developers or have you hired other, other folks that come from the industry like you, you, you do, you did and, and became software developers? Ha- did you hire any more any other profiles like yours or how was yeah good question no um so we we haven't currently um currently uh all of our developer hires have come from um the uh actually the the rakes program here at uh the uh, college of uh um, computer sciences here at uh unl um so uh, that's where that's where all of our developers have come um to or come from um to date uh, when it comes to like the experience and arch- or the background in architecture, uh, we, we focused most of our uh, customer success hires, uh, on individuals who have a ex- background and experience in architecture and engineering, um, mainly because they're the ones working with our customers and implementing the tool and identifying, uh, ways that they can build workflows to solve their problems. So, um, those are those are probably the hires where we where we focused um, on hiring um, with the AEC background. That uh, I I like the I like what you did there because and even with that sometimes collides with my own business. But like there are a lot of people in the industry who think, "Hey, I'm an architect. I need to learn how to code." But yeah. I'm not sure about that. Like, yeah, you need to know enough. To manage a developer, if you want to put together a product, I, I agree on that. But learning how to code, I don't think it's a, it's a must. I, I do think it's a must knowing about product ownership and how to lead the team uh, that it's developing something. 
Um, but, and, and for sure, for really specific technologies like 3D stuff or uh, certain complex like a Boronoi algorithm, I don't know. Yeah, it, it is great to have a, an architect who is also a developer, but it, for yeah. most cases, it, it, it is it is not. It is not. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Well, that, that's that's my, my feeling. Uh, I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah, I do. I think like I think a lot of a lot of that um, like uh, understanding that like oh I'm an architect I need to learn how to code or need to learn how to um, you know do visual scripting or or whatever else I think comes from the fact that like we have inadequate tools a lot of times that that don't en- enable us to uh, uh, solve the problems we need to solve so like we have to result we the the result is. Yeah, I guess I guess you could also say the other side of the coin is that buildings are very complex. So there, there's a lot that goes into the design of buildings, and every every building is different. Um, but I think a lot of that is shortcomings in in the tools that we're using on a daily basis. And so we think the only, uh, I guess, uh, alternative there is to build our own tools um, that solve our problems, and those usually result in one-off tools that we're building. Um, again, in visual scripting tools like Dynamo or Grasshopper um, and trying to then like deploy those to our team. And <laughs> it's not, it's not easy to do that in a uh, reliable way, uh, I would say. So I think that's actually one of the problems we're trying to solve is um, being able to like standardize uh, your workflows on a uh, reliable platform that you can deploy these custom tools across your team that are connected to uh, tools like Revit, um, but again, they you can you can they're they're scalable in that you can actually deploy these to your team in a reliable way versus you know building your own solution and and trying to um, debug it as uh, end users run. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And then that's that's what you are doing with Layer right now. Right. Um, yeah. How how do you feel you're helping the the industry? How do you feel Layer can help? uh architects engineers or whoever is using it nowadays yeah i think like the the value that we're delivering is uh we're essentially giving users uh or companies a toolkit to create their own custom tools connected to their building data so tools like uh um, building data that that sits inside of revit and other tools is really valuable information but a lot of times it's locked kind of in that silo um and uh, it's difficult to get it out. We're either exporting spreadsheets out or, um, you know, um, getting information out in, in, in other ways. Um, but what we do is we really, we connect to these models and then make that information available on any device. Um, and so now users have access to the, the model data, but then teams can also build and standardize uh, their own tools that are connected to that building data, like uh, Revit models, um, et cetera. So um, we're really in this to to make building data accessible and actionable. Um, and that's that's kind of the two things that we're really focused on. I, I've i been a user, I'm biased because I've been a user of, of your platform and even coded on top of it. But um, I, I do love uh, the way that you make, Revit simple or Revit data simple, for example, because for, for an architect that have been using Revit for I don't know ten years, it, it, it's an easy to use product. 
But I remember the first time I started working on Brabit, and it was so complex. And me being an architect, so um, and and also the fact that most people who work uh, on an architectural firm, for example, or a construction firm, most of them they don't even use Brabit. They don't even know how to use Brabit. Okay. So, but they do need that data. How to? Uh, use it in a, in a way that it's friendly and that you can even use it with your cell phone. So it's, I, I love what, what you have done there uh, for, for, for sure. And uh, I, I'm just curious, who are, who, who are the type of users that um, are taking advantage of your platform right now? Is it, is it architects? Is it people uh, in the field? Like it happened with, with your first project or how... What, what type of users have taken one advantage of it or? Yeah, good question. So our primary users are uh, really um, architects, engineers, um, and contractors uh, even who are interacting with a rabbit model or um, uh, r- related, related model types. So um, what we're doing is, again, we're connecting to those models and then some of the primary like workflows or tools that our customers are building. And I guess finding value in our in our platform with is uh, workflows like FF&E, you know, the management of fixtures, furniture and equipment, um, uh, managing room data sheets uh, um, and then um, doing condition assessments, uh, building surveys. Uh, facility audits, those that type of work where you're connecting data in the field back to information in your model. Uh, so um, that's those are pro- probably the primary workflows um, that our customers are using. Kind of secondary to uh, those workflows uh, that that I think most customers like identify as areas uh, that that we help with after the fact is um, all the work. Uh, that you can you can do in CA all the workflows you can do in, in CA of a particular project. So we have teams that utilize uh, layer for um, punch lists, site observation and field reports, taking meeting minutes. Um, and again, the, the the value we're delivering in those uh, workflows is that you can connect all of these issues, site observations, um, even links directly inside of meeting minutes directly back to objects in your model using. Uh, mentions so you can you can mention the rooms you can mention pieces of equipment or furniture uh, and then there's a relationship created between that note or that um, observation or that issue and uh, the object back in your in your project model that's cool and i what 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 are you thinking for the future like in your roadmap you're considering connecting to more platforms you're considering just one platform but added adding new features to it or how, how, what layer is going to look in five years? <laughs> Good question. So, uh, <laughs> a couple, a couple big things we're working on right now is um, extending our uh, integrations library. So, right now, uh, the models that we work with are fairly limited, but we're looking at expanding uh, that list of uh, integrations, um, both with models and also with uh, just other um, platforms uh, out out there. Like uh, we're working on a um, integration um, directly into uh, BIM Collaborate Pro um, and uh, Procore and uh, tools like that. Um, but uh, I think I think our objective is really to be 
the the home for a building's data, um, both during the constr- the design and construction, and then into the actual operations um, and maintenance of that um, particular facility. So that's really the vision is um, kind of one source of truth and one home um, for this data that's accessible anywhere, um, and you can take action on based based on this data. Oh, that's so that's so cool and. I think that's a it's a huge problem in the in the industry that everybody complains about that data is is not connected or there are silos everywhere or there are silos between faces and it and, and I feel this doesn't happen in, in other industries they don't have this problem as well. Yeah. What do you feel why do you think you are the original product that uh, tries to solve this? Why do you think that's happening in our industry uh, nowadays? Good question. Yeah, I mean, da- the problem of data drops between stakeholders, I think, is a, a huge problem. Unfortunately, I think, like, I mean, just in, in my estimation, um, I know there's a there's a ton of factors I think that go into it, but I think one of the major factors uh, is uh, just the contractual agreements that exist between parties. I, I think I think um, a lot of times, like uh, legal concerns, are what cause us to kind of uh, I think, you know, hold our data closely to our vest, um, and, uh, not share with other parties because we're concerned about, um, uh, again, um, legal concerns, like who's responsible for, um, this, uh, this, this, this data or who's responsible for this decision or, oh, the model showed it this way, but the contract documents show it another way. Um, and so which one's right. So like, I think it comes from a good place, um, in that people want to be cautious about, um, what they're sharing. Um, but I think that has ultimately led to, um, major data drops between stakeholders. And so unfortunately that's a, that's a really hard problem to solve. (laughs) Uh, but like, it's not just a matter of programming our way out of it, you know, building a, building a software solution that, that connects these tools it's i think it's more complicated than that so no oh, it, it it is and i and i feel that it, it, i bet i think that the best way of analy- analyzing this is doing analogies to other industries like for example i don't know uh, the car industry mm-hmm. it's completely different because you have just one company owning the whole process mm-hmm. so it, it's easier because they have their own rules and it's just all different providers just communicating with just a single company, a single entity. Here it doesn't work that way. Even if there is an owner, it doesn't work that way. It's like different companies on a on a on a process that it, it, it's so hard because there is not a single even when there is a GC or whatever, it doesn't work that way. Um so 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 I agree it's it's a it's a complex process that needs to be solved. Uh and it's not only about technology. I've, I've heard so many people saying, oh, we need this great format that it's going to be yeah. uh, the way that everybody can use. But yeah. In the end, it's always people. It's not only creating a fancy algorithm or a fancy format that everybody can use, I guess. That's true. Yep, yeah. exactly right. So I, I bet you're you're having tough uh Troubles implementing like everybody does in the industry, but uh, 
it's the work and it's to be done, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and we see a we see a path forward there. I think it's just it's just a hard it's a hard path to to go down. <laughs> yeah. So before we wrap up, um, for sure, I, I just love how all the pieces are put together in the history of how you made layer that uh, being an architect doing uh, uh, algorithms and grasshopper at first having a thesis on data management having your own first. Uh, your boss being your first client, and I would think like it—it it, it, it sounds like the the perfect path, and and I hope all the people can can follow what what you did with with their own ideas. Um, and I do have a couple of ping pong questions for you. So the first thing that uh, comes to my ma- your mind, just shoot. So um, can you tell me a great uh, AC software? I would say I would say my favorite is Grasshopper and continues to be. I think like beyond just like my own experience with the tool, it's been it's pretty cool to see the impact that that had on the industry. Um, I think it had a profound impact on uh, the way we the way we design buildings and kind of formed the basis for parametric design. So I, I would say that that's probably my favorite. <laughs> it, it, it is. I, I'm glad you didn't say later. Yeah. And a little bit boring. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, what do you think is the next big trend in the AC? I think, like, I think, well, I, I think the f- first thing that comes to mind is um, digital twins get talked about uh, a lot. Um, but I think there's a lot of a lot of problems with how we implement digital twins. So I, I would expect to see some work um, in that arena. Um, uh, specifically with with how we can how we can process and summarize data you know with uh with ai and other other tools that are or other technology that's at our fingertips now okay if you could collaborate with any person in history well oh. on any project which person would you choose oh boy i i think i i love work i i, I love uh buckminster fuller so um, I think I would, I think I would have a lot of fun working on a project with him. Um, I'm sure it would be uh, a geodesic dome or something like that, but <laughs> that's probably who I would choose. Uh, good choice. Uh, outside the AC, what are your hobbies or activities? I know you own a farm in, in Nebraska, <laughs> but what, what is, what is, <laughs> is, is that your passion or what other hobbies do you have? Yeah, I I would say we have uh, my wife and I have four kids. Uh, we live on a small uh, acreage, so we I I would say one of our biggest hobbies is just hobby farming. We've got some goats and chickens and uh, a garden, so I think we we all love being outside and we all we all love working on that stuff. So um, that's probably one of our biggest hobbies. It takes up a lot of our time. <laughs> yeah, I bet, and good good way of maintaining a balance between technology and just nature exactly. quiet sometimes. So what's your favorite building in the world and have you ever visited? That's that's a long list uh, uh, of favorite buildings. But like if I, the first thing that comes to my mind is uh, 432 Park Avenue in New York, um, the, the, which is the super tall residential tower. Um, I've not visited it uh, at all. I'd love to visit it. But some of the interior pictures um, and the, the exterior, like what it does to the New York skyline, I think is unforgettable so i i i really i really love that project yeah yeah 
Okay, Zach, I know you're a busy CEO and I don't want to take more of your, of your time. Thanks very much for, for being here. This was so insightful about your life and layer as well. Uh, before we uh, say goodbye, uh, can you tell the audience where they can contact you and where they can know about more about Layer? Sure. Yeah. Uh, if you're interested in finding out more about Layer, um, you can reach out to me. My email is uh, Zach at Layer.team. Um, you can check out our website. Uh, it's Layer.team. Um, and uh, we'd love to love to do, it, do a demo and uh, show you what our product can do. So it'd be awesome. Okay. Thanks very much for your time, Zach. We'll be in touch. Awesome. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to our listeners. If you like this content, you can find past and upcoming episodes in asuworks.everse.com and at all of our Everse social media. We'd love to hear from you and recommendations for new content. So leave us a DM and we'll make sure to catch it.